I'm looking for a job. In fact, I've made up my mind to find a career that I can learn and grow into. Who am I? I'm a hard worker. I set high goals, and I've been told that I'm persistent. Now, I'm not fooling myself, sir. Having been raised with the self-esteem movement so popular in schools, I used to expect my needs to be considered. But I know that today's work culture no longer caters to the job loyalty that could be promised to earlier generations. What I believe, sir, is that good things come to those who work their asses off, and that people such as yourself who reached the top of the mountain didn't just fall there. It's a double of greed and being first to get the story so you can create the narrative. Yes, I'm trying everything I do to mention fake news. Um, but if it bleeds, it leads. It's a double of 1997's Nightflyer and 2014's Nightcrawler. Um, are you all ready to sell your soul? Uh, uh, but yes, to give me, and here to give me their soul for everything, um, two of my favorite people. Uh, it is the host of the amazing Super Network. It is Super Marcy and the terrible Aussie himself, Bede. Hey, how's it going, guys? Hey, hey. Uh, hello, hello. We're back. Yes, thanks so much for um, coming on and suggesting this amazing double. Um, I had such a blast watching this, even if uh, my skin was crawling while watching Nightcrawler. Though, um, <laughs> probably if I shouldn't mention this on mic, but I wasn't the one having dreams about Jake Gyllenhaal afterward. <laughs> no, I mean- would have been me yes <laughs> i mean i mean who would have thought that the movie that that has a vampire would not be as skin crawling as the one with jake gyllenhaal as a yeah. person <laughs> yes um watch yeah you're just sort of watching this movie and you're like oh he's his personality's not that far off of people i have met in my life he's kind of He's relatable in that sense of that person you meet and you're just like, mm. there's something about them that I just need to get away as far as possible. And that is, that is Nightcrawler. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, we might as well actually jump into it. So we're sitting down. The curtains are opening. Um, actually, we'll go with Bead first. What is going to be your first trailer for um, the, the glorious Nightflyer? Ooh, I had to really think about this. Since this is a horror film that deals with a journalist, mm-hmm. like chasing after a supernatural being, I thought I'd go with a great recent example of this type of um, trend in a horror film over the past 20 years. And I would say the 2002 film, The Ring. Have you heard about this videotape that kills you when you watch it? You start to play it, and it's like somebody's nightmare. And as soon as it's over, your phone rings. And what they say is, you will die in seven days. Katie told you she was going to die. She told me. 
said she didn't have enough time. Did you say that I'm gullible? No. Easily rattled? A little highly strung, maybe. I watched the tape. Perfect. Yes, it does have... Um, I'm always surprised that every time I watch it, I forget how gory this movie is and how creepy it actually is at times, um, The Night Flyer. So, no, I think The Ring is a perfect choice for that. There's an airiness to it that just works completely. Oh, yeah, definitely. And it has a great atmosphere. It's sort of it's a great sort of uh, English language redo of the original Japanese film Ringu, which was already a great film anyway. But this this is one of the rare examples where a remake is just as good and, it, and even uh, in some areas better than the original but you know that's up to debate um <laughs> but um i mean it has a lot of atmosphere it has some incredibly creepy moments and you got naomi watts as this journalist who goes on the hunt for the origins of this curse videotape that if you watch it you die seven days later so that film like the night flyer like and this film pretty much do have kind of that similar type of uh story like i said before about a journalist going going after whether to find out whether this supernatural uh story that they've been hearing is actually legit real or no i'm sorry (laughs) legit real or not and then uh finding uh that uh, it very much is oh it very much is indeed (laughs) yes creepy kid i do remember that because I, I remember going back to see this in, what, is it 2002 when this came out? Something, oh, like, yes. something yeah. like that. I was in my flatmate's lap by the end of that movie. Because um, <laughs> I saw this before I saw the original. I've Actually, the, a friend of mine goes, oh, you haven't, when I was telling her about the set experience of me in my flatmate's lap, just like, get that thing away from me. Go back in the well, go back in the well. Um, she goes, oh, you haven't seen the original. And then she turned it on, and then I had, like, deja vu PST, uh trauma all over again and I'm hiding behind the couch um, <laughs> I do not like Samara I do not like that she, that girl in the world at all but um, I love this idea for a trailer <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah I do also think it's very fitting but The Ring is a film that I really should revisit because I wasn't the biggest fan of it and I love the original Oh yeah, I remember. Well, I actually haven't seen either of them since two thousand two, so I should probably give them um, a watch for that mm. for that very reason. Um, but yeah, great, great trailer. So, Marcy, to you, what is going to be your trailer for the Night Flyer? Yes, I originally was going to go with the original Dracula, mm. but then I changed my mind <laughs> <laughs> and I opted to pick The Howling from night. Is it nineteen eighty? Two? Eight, uh, 1981. 1981. Somewhere in this city. Report any sighting. In this human jungle. It begins. Just try. He's right there. What do you see? What's there? What do you see, Karen? What's there? Somewhere in these woods. In this primal, sensuous, secret place lies an experience too terrifying for words. And now, all anyone can do is watch and wait. Night, I'm going to show you something. And I feel like there are some similar themes with journalism and a very seedy 
kind of gory underbelly. And I do actually think, and knowing what Bede had picked as well, I felt maybe this might be more appropriate as a trailer to fit with the Night Flyer. Uh, yes. And I think when you sort of said there was choosing this, I'm like, oh, this is great because it actually does kind of go through the whole theme, especially with, I haven't seen the Howling in a couple of years, but that whole notion of is it like a new age hippie commune <clears throat> yeah. kind of thing where the werewolves are hanging out, which mm. I might get into a new, uh, it's a, um, a self-help sphere when we get into Nightcrawler, but there's that kind of overarching kind of theme of, alternative not alternative alternative lifestyles for the howling but mm. kind of this thing of these mantras you to kind of tell yourself with that goes along with that subculture that yeah. i think has become way too prevalent now and yeah uh which is all in the other movies so i think it's kind of an overarching theme and god i mean god damn it the howling is amazing <laughs> it is it's a great great movie mm. and i do think it kind of fits in with the theme with the night flyer and nightcrawler yes I think it does. It's it, plus um, that is a great creature feature, and we are going to be getting into a new creature, a, a creature feature. So yes, I absolutely love it. Um, my uh, trailer for this, I was actually going to go for Salem's Lot because there's a very specific way Stephen King writes. Because the Night Flyer is based on a short story of, of mm. Stephen King, has a very specific way he writes his uh, vampires, um, Barlow. But instead, I decided to go. For for a movie which I think is actually becoming an actual genuine cult movie, which I don't think happens very often, um, and that is 2020's uh, The Empty Man. And you think about The Empty Man. Oh, come on, Mandy, how old are you? Tell him the rest. On the first night, you hear him. And on the second night, you see him. And on the third night? Well, on the third night, he finds you. Squirming his way into your thoughts. Like a disease. <laughs> and his message is contagious. That's a great choice. Yeah, it's again, I'm going to go really woo 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 with this double, even though I am not that person, trust me. But this whole idea of chasing the thing that you become or it's kind of that whole idea of creating something from different kind of things and what is this empty man and all that kind of thing which the empty man does have some really creepy moments in it which i think is really well done oh yeah definitely like i mean um you know when i first heard about it i just assumed oh it's gonna be another like bye bye man yes! or something like that <laughs> and then it kind of just came and went and then once people actually people who i know personally mm had seen it and was starting to rave about it. And I was like, wait, I, this like bye-bye man knockoff like is is getting raised. What the hell is this? And then I actually <laughs> watched it part of my 31 Days of Horror last year. And I was completely and utterly surprised by this film. This movie definitely lives up to all the height. It's one of the more unique horror films I've seen mm -hmm. in the past few years. Like it does have like it feels like a mixture of so many different films but it feels like its own unique thing and the fact that um it almost has a david fin fincher kind of vibe to it as well uh really adds to it and it's uh, a definitely a pleasant surprise so i think everyone should check out if they kind of just shrugged it at first like i did 
No, I was definitely one of those shruggers because you hear the empty man and, yeah, the bye-bye man comes to your mind first of all and that is not in 90 minutes I'm ever going to get back from from the bye-bye man. Um, <laughs> it's it's not even bad in a fun way. It's just kind of like, ugh. Um, but, no, this is really fascinating and it has, as a lot of people have mentioned, it has the greatest short film opening to it that I've seen in a while. Um, it's just, yeah, it's a fascinating movie. I think I was a little bit, oh, was that the ending when, it, when you get to the twist? But it, the more I think about it, the more it makes sense and the more I need to go back. It's a very long movie, but actually paced really well. And yeah, I, I, that is my first trailer. And now I want to go back and watch The Empty Man. <laughs> I apparently need to see this movie because you I have not. <laughs> <laughs> No, you do. It is absolutely great. Uh, Badge Dale, I did not realize, could be a movie star, and he is absolute movie star in this movie. Yes. Mm. <laughs> and with that, we are going into actually, uh, I don't think I'm alone in this because um, when I found out that you two also like this movie, I was very overjoyed. But one of Stephen King's more or underrated mm. um, adaptions, and that is, of course, 1997's The Night Flyer, directed by Mark Pavia. One, zero, one, Bravo, Lima. Come in, over. I can't have you sitting in the middle of my runway. Respond, over. kind of grown up with or um did you come to it sort of later when you digging through all the king adaptions going what what's this dracula dracula on a plane movie <laughs> <laughs> well i remember seeing this movie when i was a teenager and it was yeah. roughly around about the time i started to get into horror films mm. uh, as well so it was about probably either either 98 or 99 i saw this film um i wasn't sure what to expect i remember just seeing the video cover down at the video shop and like i was intrigued especially because it had like i know there was different covers for this movie but the mm. one that we had here in australia at the time at least from what i remember was just had like just the plane up in the air and then the shadow of the plane but it was like the, in the shadow form of a bat oh and, yeah and I, this was really intrigued by this like that cover and i thought oh you know i'll check this out and I watched it, I really liked it, and I didn't watch it again until Marcy and I uh, covered it for our uh, our Stephen King podcast, uh, The King Zone, uh, last year. And that had been, yeah, roughly about probably 23 years since I last seen it. And watching it again, I've got to say, it really holds up. Uh, it's a great little vampire tale. And like you, Lindsay, I think it's definitely up there as one of the more underrated Stephen King adaptations. Mm. Mm. Yeah, what about you, Marcy? Yes, well, I do kind of remember seeing this years ago. I can't remember why or what the what, what I was... I honestly can't remember right now. But I remember liking it then. But it wasn't until we revisited, revisited it for an episode of The King Zone where mm. I was like, holy shit, this is really 
freaking good and just really seeing all those layers that this film uncovers and it yeah Stephen King really does do vampires in a very different way and this is so different because you've got you know vampire on a plane or Dracula on a plane or Redfield on a plane <laughs> and the way the way it goes about it and then you have the obsessive you know journalist played so well by Miguel Ferrer, oh, yes like, so good it's just this amazing, uh, intriguing mystery that I feel like the ending pays off in a very unexpected way. Oh, I love the ending. Tonally and mm. textually of this movie, you do not see that ending coming. I mean, yes, mm. with the events of it, yeah, you can kind of see where it's leading up to. But the fact that we're jumping ahead quite a bit, the fact that it t- descends into um george romero by way of fulci is so Mm. surprising and beautifully cinematic especially because this movie for all its faults does tend to look like a tv movie except there's patches of amazing gore in it we're like whoa that guy has no throat Mm. Um, (laughs) but it is such and it's really a smart movie because as you said um because i have i know i saw it at some point in australia i even own a crappy dvd of it by the way blu-ray Seriously, come on. Um, <laughs> it's um, and I just sort of remember thinking, "Oh my god, really?" Um, this is bef- just before I was getting back into Stephen King. Even of like, of course he wrote about a goddamn vampire on a plane. That's the <laughs> dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then you watch it, and then you realize, see the connective tissues of what it's actually doing, and kind of, well, yeah, this is kind of going back to, I mean, the fact that he's called Dwight Renfield, I mm. lose my mind. Um, but it's this amazing, uh, it's this kind of amazing way of, okay, so if Dracula's going to be taken over by boat to something, because it's often just delivered, how would that work in a modern context? Mm. It'd be by plane. And the fact yeah. is, that, yeah, it's it all works. And the fact that Miguel Ferreira, who's so good in this, also flies. It's kind mm. of already building that kind of connective tissue of, um Miguel's or Richard D's face and mm. the um and also yeah just this kind of modern thing of actually how you would transport a coffin around real yeah. quick that'd be by plane so yeah 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 sorry yeah <laughs> is trying to thought <laughs> <laughs> well yeah essentially like when you look at Salem's Lot at least with the miniseries because I have not yet read the book but I will uh, it is very much the sort of the Dracula coming to suburban America. Mm, yes. Where this is Dracula coming still over, but it's via a plane. Mm. And that's what I find really interesting because he takes that like basic concept, but morphs it into something his own. And I find it interesting that this does focus on the blood-sucking nature of journalism and how that really translates to the vampire lore. But not only that, with the way how Dracula as a book is framed as well. And I find that quite fascinating, especially, you know, with the end product that we get here, as well as there being a lot of really cool Easter eggs with some of the stories that I think Richard D's covers. Mm. 
uh, I can't remember exactly what they are. I don't know if you uh, could remember them, Bede, because I think we both sort of pointed them out to each other. Yeah, well, there was like a sort of like this Hall of Fame, like mm-hmm. at the um, at the tabloid that Richard Dees works at, and it contains mm-hmm. all these magazine covers, and all the stories are ones that hint at other Stephen King stories. Mm. And to sort of give an idea, because I actually do have it in front of me right now, because I had a feeling this was going to be brought up. Excellent. Um, <laughs> Excellent. So I'm, I'm glad someone, that, one of us is organised. <laughs> yes. Uh, I feel like a sense of deja vu, because I did the exact same thing on uh, The King's Zone, which you can listen <laughs> to right now over at the Super Network. But anyways. Yes, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's sort of like, uh, I'll read some of these out, like some of the ones that you see. And I had include, um, let's see, uh, Kitty Cultus in Kansas worship creepy voodoo god which of course is a reference to uh children of the corn mm-hmm. uh interesting enough a satanic shopkeeper sells gory goodies which is a reference to needful things which was we covered on the king's own recently with you <laughs> Lindsay. Yeah, um, yeah. what a coincidence <laughs> <laughs> also we had uh naked demons leveled my lawn for, which is a reference to the original story of the lawnmower man not the not the movie version. <laughs> not, the, not, the, not the not the um oh, v- what is it called when you virtual reality? Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes. And uh, the ultimate killer diet: gypsy curse flays fat lawyers' flesh, which are was as a reference reference to thinner and, and a couple other ones there, but they're kind of uh, other adaptations of story. I mean, other stories of Stephen King's like yeah. Strawberry Spring, mm. the Breathing Method. So yeah. it's a good little Easter egg moment because even I was like noticing that mm. wall. And I'm thinking, okay, wait one of those looks, wait a second. And then <laughs> I sort of paused the movie and basically you could, it, it's a fun little thing just to read all these stories. And, mm. and also since a lot of Stephen King's work is like a lot of it is set in the same universe. Um, so it's kind of a fun little in- Easter egg to say, mm. oh yeah, Nightflyer exists in the universe of all these other stories that are yeah. And it was yes. funny that we actually had, um, when we did cover the Night Flyer, Thinner was also on that episode. So <laughs> it was. Uh, it was like, oh, so many Easter eggs everywhere. Another, <laughs> another underrated Stephen King adaption, Thinner. I do love and enjoy Thinner. I do as well. It's so, just so, yeah, I love a good curse movie, especially. Um, yeah, I can't remember the actor's name, but he's it's so such an arsehole. He's so great. Uh, yeah, no, that is actually really great. And that you're right, that is the kind of thing you can imagine. Richard D's kind of the one that kind of flies around the country, mm. uh, covering all these kind of crazy stories that are happening in the Stephen King universe. Mm. And it's it's quite comforting and comforting to know, and the fact that it's also Stephen King fitting, as in what happens to him. Um, I kind of saw a couple and went, oh yeah. And then I got really okay. Did anyone else see the goddamn Minotaur in the edit- editor's office? <laughs> I don't think I did until you mentioned it. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't think I realized there yeah. was a Minotaur. To be honest, <laughs> yes, a, okay. So he's talking to his editor, and they're sort of arguing about this kind of supposed vampire, possible vampire story mm. of a vampire flying around small airports in in America and and killing people. All these weird murders happening all around the country. And in the background, which I think go, turns into the fact that, you know, journalism is a very blood-sucking thing and you would mm. eventually turn into the monster that you're hunting, mm. as in the Minotaur. But And it's the three panels of the Minotaur, but I swear the middle panel, there's the Minotaur. He's kind of sitting rather saucily with his two hooves in between his legs, like oh. he's one of his French girls. I don't – he's sitting really awkwardly <laughs> and all I could do is like, wait, is that – 
Minotaur posing like he's being painted by Leonardo DiCaprio. What is happening? Yeah, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> it is so friggin' weird. I, I, I kind of can't remember what, I, all I know is that we're talking. I was just staring in on this goddamn Minotaur going, that's not a, what, who found that? <laughs> and I'm not usually one of those people who notices like the set design or anything like that a lot. I'm usually, <laughs> I get too distracted, but God, that was a distracting Minotaur. <laughs> It was saucy. It was a saucy minotaur. Saucy minotaur. I'm going to go right now look up saucy minotaur on Wish. Uh, see, I, see, you're going to go down like basically like a rabbit hole and then you're going to be like, I regret doing this. I always regret my decision. Uh, yes. Speaking of, well, not regretting to go on Twitter at this moment, but there is a After Dark uh, um, thing on when I just opened my Twitter to see my phone, which happens to have a... Um, here's B. Jemine as Cara, um... Cara Delevingne. and now I cannot unsee that. <laughs> you want a weird boner. <laughs> that was my cat. <laughs> B, you look good. <laughs> uh, sometimes I wonder, maybe I should have been born a woman because every time it's either a photo or a video, I'm like, damn, I actually look great. <laughs> you really do. Sorry, that was a sorry, that was, really that was amazing. Oh, welcome. <laughs> this is called that's called serendipity. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I, I think I finally found something that beats speed singing the um Jimmy Barnes. Actually, I don't know what the freaking song is. I just know it's Jimmy. Uh, you and a hat screaming. The screaming. On the <laughs> yes. Yes. That, that was a great the song is just the screaming. Yeah, if you, exactly. If, you got to follow Marcy and Bede purely just for their like. Um, I don't know what the app is, but they'll just swap their faces onto different things, and it is yeah. makes my day. Yeah, well, the, the, uh, but fair warning: if anyone goes back in my archives and tries to look for anything I do, brief face, uh, prepare to be terrified by the time I put my face on Junior from in uh, Problem Child too. That was just terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but back to the night flyer <laughs> Bean has not put his face on anything um but uh, well, what? please make it dracula <laughs> exactly well i would be putting my face on uh dwight redfield in this yes. movie because one of the things i even as i remember even though i hadn't seen this film for like 22 23 years until last i we rewatched it last year. One of the things I all, that struck me the most on that first watch, and I never forgot ever since, uh, was of course the design of Dwight Renfield mm. in the film. It's one yes. of the most unique looking vampires I've ever seen yeah. in a mm. film, and it do, even though he does speak like mm. like like as a normal person. And you barely see his face until a certain moment. But when you finally see it, it's kind of hard to describe. It almost feels like it, it's pretty much otherworldly. Like he is a legit monster in this film. And I love the fact that like, it's not like a Nos, like Nosferatu, like Max Shrek or any, or even like um, Gary Oldman in his sort of vampiric form in Bram Stoker's Dracula. He looks sort like so animalistic and like his head is like way is like 10 times bigger than a normal person's head and he also has these kind of rat like features and the fact that um he only has one fang 
and it's a huge fang, which yes! you know, which was one of the things like because you know with vampires, uh, everyone's like they have two fags that they use to kill and drain people's blood. But in this one, he's more like vicious because he uses that one giant fang to kind of puncture a huge hole in people's necks to the point where it almost looks like the heads are about to fall off the body to like, they're almost been decapitated on mm. the body. Yeah. That's what I noticed from this time around. It feels much more like an animal attack because yeah. everyone knows. And especially if you watch anything hammer or anything universal or kind of um, even uh, as you mentioned, Gary Oldman's um, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Coppola, these two little prick, prick marks on your neck on a vampire mm. victim, and that's how you know they're being bit. This mm. one, it's a hole, or the neck is completely gone. This mm. is a, these are animal attacks, um, mm. and it's much more animalistic. He is, he's kind of like a, again, like a rat or a snake, where he can charm his victims. Like there's the one guy who's at the airport who's kind of um, completely entranced by him, and he's he's cleaning the he's cleaning the plane essentially, and it's this the way it. Um, Pavi uh, shoots this. He's he's like concentrating on the hand as he squeezes the the sponge, and he's just like rubbing the plane with this utmost care. It's such he and he, the movie's full of this as these weird shots of absolute gore where you're not expecting it because the movie doesn't have that tone that you're going to see violence, and then you'll get these other weird shots of the story of the the woman who's again in trance show she wants to go get a haircut and just the way i don't know there's got this movie's weirder than i think you would expect it to be mm. and it's better because of it because you're sort of watching these kind of weird moments of care of these kind of manual kind of moments and it's when these people are completely taken over by the vampire and then they are thus murdered and then you've just got d's kind of showing up kind of just after the fact and just yeah, being in crime scenes, he should not be in. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, there's this moment I love of both Nightcrawler and this movie where they show up and they go, you can't be here. I'm the press. Oh, okay. Just take mm. photos. I'm like, I know in Australia you couldn't do that. You'd get punched in the gut and thrown out the door. So I don't necessarily, and, but yeah, apparently you can just, well, sit, as long as you say, I have a camera, look, I'm press. Yeah. You can go right in. <laughs> yeah, apparently you can just do whatever. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. I mean. Like, seriously. But, <laughs> but I think that's one of the smart things about this film and what really struck me the most and mm. what, of course, the comparisons to Nightcrawler is what, mm. and what the Stephen King does pretty well. And I also give uh, Mark Pavier and his co-writer, a lot of credit too hmm. is that they use journal as vampirism and journalism are kind of in a way have a lot of similarities to each other especially tabloid journalism how yeah. you got this character of richard dees who goes to all these different crime scenes sometimes he'll show up earlier than before the cops get there so he can get great photos mm -hmm. and basically like a lot of these photos are in a way some would say blood money because it's mm, it you is. know no, and and in a way, and that, like, even though he goes on the hunt for Dwight Renfield, in a way, Dwight Renfield is very intrigued by Dees because he sees a lot of similarities in mm. him as well, even though he's not a vampire. They're kind of chasing blood in their own way. Yeah, I love the conversation he's having with Julie um, Entwistle, uh at the beginning when she's just a new cub reporter and she's all kind of, you know, excited and, and um, ambitious and very idealistic about what it means to be a journalist, even though she's working at a tabloid newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, 
And he basically, he just tells me the story of, yeah, I had a friend once, she died, and I just took, started taking photos of her because she was suddenly the news. Again, a very similar scene is going to happen in Nightcrawler. And it's mm. this amazing kind of thing because you're following, yeah, it, the Dwight Renfield is really interested in Richard Dees because, yes, you're right, he sees this kind of common thing of what you have to do to be, even even if you're a good journalist, you still have to do the same thing Richard Dees does. I mean, mm. you, we could have chosen the um, a trailer for All the President's Men or Spotlight, and mm. they are doing, but those reporters are doing good things. They are actually trying to uncover things the public mm. need to know, uh, scandals um they are not they will not stop asking questions they will not stop being in places they're not meant to be but it's for a good cause because well pedophile priests and a dodgy president nixon yes you're not going to be on their side um but with richard Dees, he's going to places where this is someone's worst day this is a bloody massacre he's mm. not going there to find the truth he's going there <clears throat> to find the blood yeah um, which is yeah, it's a really interesting comparison between him and 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 Dwight, and that's why I love the ending so much in this mm. movie. It mm. always the first time I saw it, I had to rewind it. Um, actually, I did it again because I just love as soon as it just goes turns to the black and white, you're almost you're in his head, and it's suddenly all the evil he has witnessed is consuming him. Um, and it's such a phenomenal performance by um, Miguel Ferreira. He is so good as as this scummy man. But yeah. you can see kind of the anger and the sadness in him as well. I, mm. I don't yeah, quite know how to explain it, but there's something under yeah. the surface. Yeah. Yeah, the, it's in a way with Miguel Ferreira's performance as Richard Dees. And he's phenomenal in mm. this film. And it kind of shows, like, even though he was more of a character actor who kind of appeared in more supporting roles than anything else, he can actually headline his own film really well. Yeah. And he, mm. and, it's, and this film is a great showcase for him as an actor. Mm. And I think what's interesting, though, when I look back on this film and his performance is, like, yeah, he's a complete utter asshole. Eh, but at the same time, there you can also get a sense that he also doesn't like what he does. Like, mm. he doesn't want to admit it because eh, he knows, like, it's – the type of work that'll you know give him some fame give him mm. money and all that mm. but you can also see that it's also eating away at him as well to the point where he's starting to lose his humanity mm. yeah you're actually that's a really good point because uh, i like how this is a tabloid and tabloids back in the day wouldn't just uh they it's the whole men in black thing when they go into the tabloid magazines mm. and say, oh this is we do most of research they love to kind of um, put mythical monsters in there and like, oh, Elvis is alive. He's living in my shed. Um, and that's when tabloids were fun, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I miss those tabloids. Can, I, if they could go back to writing about aliens and Marilyn Monroe being alive, um, mm. I think I would be – the world would be a better place <laughs> than it is, but they don't. Um, so whatever. But it is kind of the trash – he's working at the trashiest place of the trashiest place – Mm. Uh, and there is no respect in what he does, but he does have no notoriety, and he knows he's good at it, which he hates. Yeah, it's kind of when you find mm. the one thing you're good at is something you hate, mm. and how do you deal with that, and do you just continue, or do you just, what do you do? Yeah, for sure. Mm. But I, I think, yeah, it's it's very on the nose with the comparisons in the film to mm. Uh, journalism, like at least tabloid journalism being this very blood-sucking type of business. Uh, so it's like a very natural fit. 
But if you think about Nightcrawler, and I know we haven't gotten there yet, the Jake Gyllenhaal's appearance almost looks very vampiric. Does I think I called which, him an overlarge skeleton with large eyes? Yeah, so, yes. which definitely again <laughs> uh, reminds me of this and how this used the vampires to really represent that. So I think that kind of ties it in really well as a double as well. It really does, and the fact that I guess comparing it with when we get into Nightcrawler, um, Julie Entwistle's kind of ending is very similar to what Nightcrawler is, is that she kind of picks up the mantle of Richard Dees after he's kind of, after he's been killed, she just starts taking the photos. She's like, Mm. okay, I'm here. I need to get the story. I've lost all kind of um, innocence of what this job is now. And now I can get the big story that we caught the, Mm. the night flyer. And I knew him and look, Mm. I, I got the story and it's not what happened but it's the way she can twist it. And so mm. the cycle's just going to carry on. There's always going to yeah. be vampires going around mm. just taking photos. Yeah. I guess um, for me with her, sort of where her character goes in the end, like she's definitely going to be like in a way her uh, a Richard Dees herself, but you'd also get the sense like, uh, because what Richard Dees says to her earlier in the film, like the big advice he gives her as a journalist is – I think it's along the lines, and I'm completely paraphrasing, so if I get it wrong, so please <laughs> forgive me. It's, um, uh, don't publish what you believe. Oh, so, no, believe, I forgot what it is. It's, it's along the lines, basically, like, uh, uh, publish what you don't believe. Uh, don't believe what you see? Is it, yeah. something, like, is it something like that? Like, don't uh, believe you what you what? see. You know what, I should look this up because I'm getting it all wrong, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't remember it either. And I it's something like that. I think I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. And yeah. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find it, uh, but uh, we'll continue until I do. <laughs> but, no, um, yeah, but it's kind of, yeah, I love how the look of this movie, how it does look like it's going to be, well, this kind of ho- foamsy, hoaxy kind of thing, which is Stephen King. And then with the score, but it does actually look like a premise of a um, early 90s made for TV movie, even though it was Mm. 97. But then you get these amazing moments of gore and these really amazing, practical, simple, practical effects. I love the moment when he's in the airport bathroom and Mm. all you're looking at is the mirror. And since it's it's a a vampire, he can't, you can't see in the mirror. So you're just seeing the mirror smash, Mm. smash, smash. Right up to where Miguel is, who I'm assuming is still trying to take a pee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I found the line for you, by the way. It's yeah. never believe what you publish and never publish what you believe. Yeah. Ah, yes. So basically, in a way, because what with uh, uh, Juliet Whistle, this was only one of two acting roles that she did and she retired from the industry. I was uh, really surprised by that. It was, yeah, yeah, two and done. Yeah. Yeah, but I think she is actually married to Marc Pavier in real life. So I think. Uh, um, that's why, you know, and I think they're still together, but I could be wrong. But anyways, um, <laughs> but basically from what I gathered, at least the ending is like, um, like she could publish the truth of what happened. But I think she kind of knew, especially seeing Dwight Renfield in those last moments before he f- flies off, is that if he she publishes the truth, she knows that he's going to come after her, too. So basically to kind of hide the truth. Uh, she publishes the lie that it was actually the lie being that Richard Dees was the one mm. who was flying around killing all mm. these people mm. and not Dwight Redfield. Mm. 
Yes. Uh, it, it makes, yeah, because she's taking on the lesson that he, he told her. But, oh, my God, that airport sequence is absolutely amazing. It is so bloody. And the, when he mm. slip, he's walking, there's blood everywhere. He slips on the blood. He has to go in and tidy up. And then the thing in the mirror happens. And, yeah. And when he's screaming, I want to see your face, it's mm. like he's breaking his own rules. Um, cause he's got a, he, he can't print this cause he, he can't print what he believes. So if he kind of sees Renfield's face, it's breaking all his rules and then it just completely breaks his mind, which is even better. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. That's what I, I love so much about this film. And I do agree with, it does at times have that kind of TV movie feel, but mm. I think once it gets to the end in that sort of big sequence at the, at the large airport where there's like a, like Richard Dees walks in and there's like a complete massacre of all yeah. these people here. That's when the movie becomes very cinematic and a lot of great effects. And mm. once it go, that goes into that sort of black and white sort of hallucinate dreams, sorry, dream <laughs> sequence. And it just becomes absolutely creepy. And the way that, these people, like all the victims of Dwight Renfield, but even those who are uh, victims of Richard Dees and his photography work, mm, yes. kind of rise out of the mist in these vampiric forms. And their makeup, mm. like in their own way, is also incredibly chilling as well. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. It's like they spent all the money on that <laughs> on scene. That. Yeah. And it was totally <laughs> worth it. It comes. Yes. It blew me sideways when I went, wait, what? What is happening? <laughs> this is like I'm in a different movie, but in such a good way because, yeah, he's descended completely into madness. Mm. It's like his life is flashing before his eyes. And unfortunately, it's all the shitty stuff he did. There's no redemption for him whatsoever. Yeah. And I love the fact that Miguel can give you a performance where you actually feel for him. Mm. You... You kind of hope, even watching this time around, because I've seen this the third time I've seen it, I'm still hoping that he'll redeem himself at some point. Like, because there's always a, he gives a performance where you believe mm. that this man could do the right thing and could redeem himself, but he's always too far gone. He's always, mm -hmm. he's done too much. He's, he's never going to go back. And every time we get to that black and white sequence, I'm sad and excited because I'm about to see some nightmare fuel. But at the yes. same time, I'm like, oh, no, he, he's not He's not going to redeem. He's, he's in hell. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. He's done for pretty much. Yeah. yeah. He, he's like, no, there's no redeeming this character. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. No, I love this movie. And if you think, oh, my God, a movie called The Night Flyer about a Dracula who flies in a plane – Trust me, this is not Snakes on a Plane. This is a really <laughs> thoughtful, um, incredible genre movie about um, how you turn into a monster, how you mm. um, how you become the thing that you're hunting kind of thing and the yeah. similarities between um, a blood-sucking vampire and a blood-sucking journalist. It's, mm. it's, it's kind of incredible. Um, anything else you want to say about this before we move on to the main event? Um, I'll, I'll say this now that I think about it now. Mm. Uh, if you want to do a different type of double feature with this film involving vampires on a play, I would also suggest do it as a double feature with Blood Red Sky, the <laughs> Netflix horror film, which also has vampires on a play. Literally. Yes. Well, you could also do the very upsetting double feature of The Night Flyer and I Saw the Devil of, of becoming Ooh. the very thing that you were chasing. Ooh. Yes. That's actually a good one. That is really good. I love... 
I saw The Devil, but every time I think I should watch that movie again, I'm like, do you? <laughs> Even <laughs> though that movie is incredible. It is. Um, oh, my God. Sorry, I'm just thinking of the jaw-ripping scene, which is <laughs> A lot of that movie is just, it's very confronting as well. But, yeah. Yeah. I think The Night Flyer, just as a whole, I think it's a very underrated Stephen King adaptation. And in the world of vampires in general, I think it's a really great film. And if you haven't seen it or you haven't really heard of it, definitely seek it out because it is worth watching. It has some really great practical effects, really great performances, great themes, great makeup. I mean, it's kind of everything you want from a vampire movie and it is incredibly Stephen King like as we said mm. as uh Bede was talking about with the easter eggs and this different stories and the printed stories but you also get that very I mean oh they can't remember who's the guy and who's telling the story but he has the most New England accent of New England accents he puts Fred Quinn to shame almost from Pet Cemetery. Um, he goes over there, <laughs> just like going, oh, you're amazing, <laughs> sir. I love you. And you look so old and you have that accent. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Pavia knew he was making Stephen King adaption and put a main New England in there, an accent in there accordingly. Um, it's great. Yes. It's wonderful. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. And I hope more people see it. So it gets a very stunning Blu-ray. So I can watch this all in perfect, this TV looking movie in perfect quality. Exactly. Um, yes. Mm. Um, and with that, we are going to get into a movie that I love, but doesn't fill me as much joy as <laughs> the Nightflyer does. Uh, Nightcrawler from 2014. Um, okay. Let's go with Marcy. What is going to yes. be your trailer for uh Dangil, is it Dangil or Tony? What are the Gilroys? Um, ah, uh, Dangilroy. Dangilroy. Yeah. I did, the, I did have that written down. <laughs> Dangilroy's the Nightcrawler. What is your first trailer? <laughs> yes, my trailer of choice is the Martin Scorsese classic Taxi Driver. So, what do you want to hack for, Bickle? I can't sleep nights. There's a porn up there just for that. Yeah, I know, I tried that. So what do you do now? No, ride around nights mostly, subways, buses. I figure, you know, I'm gonna do that, I might as well get paid for it. Travis, you run all over town, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you handle some pretty rough customers here. Yeah, yeah. You carry a piece? No. You need one? No. 12 hours of work and I still can't sleep. Damn. Days go on and on. They don't end. And the reason I picked this with Nightcrawler is, like, seriously, you could do a double feature with these two films in general because they have this very similar feeling where every scene just makes you so uncomfortable with what is going on. And it's these very... Uh, you can't look away from these main characters, but you probably should because it's almost like you're feeding into what they're doing and their behaviour. And the both films have this very grimy and seedy feel about them. So that's why I picked Taxi Driver. I think there are very similar themes as well. But it's definitely this grimy and such an uncomfortable feeling as you watch these. Yeah, especially since in both movies you are in the both points of view of yeah. Travis Bickle and 
Louis Bloom, Louis Bloom yeah. which are both horrendous human beings. I would say that Travis Becker, you can tell, is broken. Like there may have been a time when he was a child when he might have had a chance. And then you just, when you tell you meet him, he's just yeah. done. I don't know if Lou Bloom was ever, I think no. he was that kid <laughs> who just stare at you and you're just like, I need to get away from you. Mm. Um, but it's such a good pair. It's such a good trailer idea because you're right. These have such similar kind of things. And both one is so grimy New York and the other one is grimy LA, mm. but at the same time, a too clean LA, if that makes sense yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's not the it's not visually almost how la is it's just that feel oh, yeah, but just the way people talk and interact yeah just and, everything about it is and the video the way the video you see the yeah. videos video are just bleh, yeah, yeah. whereas but, no, i think taxi driver you can see it as well as feel it in that yeah well. you can smell ta- actually, you can you almost can, smell it yeah, you, you can, can smell taxi mm. driver yeah, you, you can, can smell, smell the taxi <laughs> yes Yes, yes, you can. Um, and both have very specific. Um, is it? Uh, they're superior. They have a uh, very specific superior superiority complex. Is that yes, it? That yes, that is yes. what you're looking for. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, I'm going to be using a lot of psychological terms that I have no understanding for. So I do apologize because I'm not a doctor. So this is me just flinging around words that I don't actually have any understanding of. <laughs> this is, this is going to be the beginning of that. Um, uh, Bede, you obviously love the taxi driver. Oh, obviously, yeah. I mean, it's one of Martin Scorsese's great films, and it's, I, I rewatched it last year because it's been a while since I've seen it. And I agree with both of you. It's such a dirty, grimy film that mm. really sort of captures that period of New York in the seventies cr- quite well. Mm. And even though the story and the character of Travis Bickle are very unsettling and disturbing, I think that. The, how the environment that Martin Scorsese brings to the film really adds to that sort of uncomfortable feeling you have throughout that whole film. And then it, it just adds another mm. layer to the whole proceedings. And, and what, and rewatching Nightcrawler in prep for this podcast, I definitely got that sense of feeling as well, quite a lot while mm. watching it. Oh, absolutely. That is absolutely true. And Bede, what is going to be your choice of trailer for Nightcrawler? Well, since this is a film that also deals with uh, the media's, you know, obsession for ratings and mm. bloodlust, I thought I'd go with one of probably one of the best films to deal with this very subject matter, and that, of course, is another film that came out in 1976 with the Network. Because of poor ratings. Since this show was the only thing I had going for me in my life, I have decided to kill myself. I'm going to blow my brains out right on this program. A week from today. What the hell's going on? Prepare yourself for a perfectly outrageous motion picture. Howard Beale went up there last night and said what every American feels, that he's tired of all the bull... sakes, Diana, we're talking about putting a manifestly irresponsible man on national television. I am not putting Howard back on the air. It's not your show anymore, Max. It's mine. I got a feeling I'm being made. You are. Got to warn you, I, I don't do anything on my first date. We'll see. Yes! Um, actually, I just might see if I can find Ned Beatty's speech uh, that he gives this, mm. this, that he probably should have won an Oscar for. Um, he may have even been nominated. Um, that he gives to, I can't remember the magic uh, Howard Beale. Howard Beale. By, by uh, Australian actor Peter Fitch. Uh, Fitchy! Um, yeah. yeah. 
in his um, Oscar-winning role. Yes, <laughs> posthumously. Um, no, it, it's there's a speech Ned Beatty gives toward the end, which I think spawned Lewis Bloom. It is kind of, we are a business. We are here to make money. I tell you mm. what to do, and then you do it so I can make money for me. This is not... You are not meant to be thinking your point of view. Um, and I saw Network, oh, got a good couple, maybe last month. And I was blown away by, they keep sort of saying, yes, they predicted the future. And then you talk to Paddy Chayefsky and he's like, no, I was just right about what's happening now. And Network is always going to be relevant. It's one of those mm. terrifying movies where you're like, yeah, this is, if Faye Dunaway is working at friggin' Fox News and CNN, right at this moment or even <laughs> nine or whatever or sky news right right at this particular moment and i'm just like going, yeah the world is filled with pay dunaways oh, yeah. how do i how do i have emotion i don't understand <laughs> yeah well it, it's been a while since i've seen network but i remembered yes, at I the am. time but i remembered at the time when i watched it it's like wow this movie came out like this would have been mm. about 30 years probably 30 odd years when it first came out and it was just so relevant, mm. especially at that, because I was getting really obsessed with news media, just especially like it's with, uh, you know, Fox News sort of on the rise during the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, mm. And uh, that movie was just so in fascinating to me. It's like, mm. like how we have, we pretty much in terms of when it comes to news media, it has not changed that much and is no. still relevant. And now I imagine if I watch the film again today, I'll be like, you know what? It's still very much the same mm. as yeah. I did when I first watched it. Yeah, because I remember when I first watched Network, which was good quite a while ago to my last watch, I was obsessed with The Daily Show and Jon Stewart. Mm. And he was kind of my mad prophet. And even, yes, he is spouting everything that I agree with. He's not exactly changing minds. Um, I was just, yep, this, this is where I get my news from. I get my news from a comedian. And then mm. I'm watching Network and go, Maybe that's not the best idea because, uh, yeah, he's my mad prophet. He's my Howard Beale. It's, mm. it's no – he's literally sitting there every week going, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Start screaming it. Mm. Um, and it's not that much different now. And you're watching it and it just – all the performances are, are amazing. I mean, I think it's William Holden in it. Um, he is incredible in this. Actually, everyone is Faye Dunaway playing a soulless character who likes the idea of emotion and plays with it, but she ultimately mm. doesn't understand it. And the amount of times they talk <clears throat> about SharePoints, it's insane. That's all she can talk about is just SharePoint, SharePoints. Mm. And the dialogue has this way of almost being like an orchestra. Every single character has their own cadence and the way pace and alliteration and the way they speak. And so when um, the characters start talking on top of each other, it honestly feels like Paddy Chariotsky's there just um, being a composer actually more than actually being a writer. It is, I, I mean, I love Sidney Lumet's one of my favorite characters, my, my favorite directors, but I'm just like, oh, this is Paddy's, this is Paddy's movie. He wrote it and um, Lumet, who I adore, just went, I'm just going to point the camera shoot it that way and you guys mm. are just going to hit your marks and do I'm just not going to touch you. Mm. You, know, you know your lines, you're not changing them, go forth, act. And it is, it is a master, it is, oh my God, I love Network so much. <laughs> <laughs>
and sort of talking about it now. Like I said, it's been a while since I've watched it, but now I really want to rewatch it again. Rewatch so, it. Yeah, same. It's like I really need to revisit Network. I forgot Duval was in this. And Super yes. I'll have to go, Duval! Every single this, time he shows up. <laughs> this is a film, like, uh, where every performance is on fire and the fact that it won like three of the f- four acting awards mm-hmm. that year at the Oscars and including one uh, Beatrice Strait who won Best Supporting Actress, she won it for a five-minute performance and she's only in the movie for two small scenes. To be mm-hmm. fair, that is a hell of a monologue she gives about oh, yeah, the nature of falling out of love. I'm just, because you before I'm so cynical, I'm like, can't believe they gave it to Beatrice and you watch and you're like, yeah, just give her the Oscar. That That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Um, yeah, so you chose some two masterpieces. Um, Taxi Driver, I need to watch again. Though I'm always like, got to brace myself. Yeah, you do taxi. for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that Raging Bill, I, I don't know what it is, but I'm just mm. like, I love those movies, but I don't know if I want to go back. Can I watch Shutter Island instead of it's Scorsese um, or Goodfellas? But yeah. I'm going to bring the tone right down. I am going to go for definitely if it bleeds, it leads, but I'm going to go for The Running Man from 1987 directed by one of, I can't remember if it was Starsky or Hutch, but it was directed by Paul Michael Glazer. In the year 2017, an innocent man accused of a crime has a choice, hard time or prime time. Sensational, perfect contestant. I want him. He must pay or play the running man. On your mark. I'll be back. highest-rated TV show in history. Because they want us to stay. It's a game between life and death. Yeah, it's Arnie yeah. round in a jumpsuit, killing people in a reality TV show where you kill people. And it's yeah. that much different away from Nightcrawl <clears throat> and Network. <laughs> yeah, really, it's, it's not all that different when you no. think about it. <laughs> And again, another piece of Stephen King that was turned into a film. But this one people kind of tend to forget, I think, because it was penned under Richard Bachman, if I'm Mm. mistaken. Yeah. His, uh, his, um, uh, alias, yeah. his alias. I can't mm. remember the twin movie he made, the Tim, the dark half, his dark half, yeah. I should say. Mm. Yeah, Sorry, I, guess, I was going to say, like, also, it probably didn't help, like, most people not realizing that this is a Stephen King adaptation, is that it's more of an Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle than a Stephen King. Yeah, well, that's it, because you have, like, such a big star, like Arnold, yeah. But it, yeah. it's kind of funny how weirdly this film holds up in different ways, because again, we did cover it for the King's Own podcast, mm. so it is something that's more fresh in my memory as well. Mm. But, yeah, it, it it kind of fits with Nightcrawler in a very weird way because it's kind of almost the same thing and it's very weird. Mm. Yes, it is very campy. Like, mm. even though it's an Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of vehicle and it is very Arnold Schwarzenegger, mm. I was kind of forgot how campy this movie is. It, oh, like, it is, yeah. It's oh, yes. so silly and so berserk and so weird and then wrestlers are showing up. Things are showing up. He's doing one-liners every single time he kills people. Oh, yeah. I mean, and the way they kill people is like, holy hell, I like this as a kid because I remember seeing stuff like this and being terrified. But The Running Man, I was like, yeah, awful. Let's get um, Arnie to kill a whole bunch of people I'm oh, in, yeah. in a spandex jumpsuit. I'm all for it. And, and, <laughs> and how can we forget one of the greatest Arnold Schwarzenegger lines of all time? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. The exact <laughs> phrasing. 
You needed to be ready. <laughs> I, I should have been ready. It's more of the lines of, uh, I'm trying to do my auto board. You might have to cut this out. <laughs> I'm going to find the line because I'm trying to remember it. Word for word. Running man quotes. <laughs> okay, let's see. I know see. the line, I can't remember it. Okay, now I got it. I got yeah. it right here. Okay. okay. And how could we forget this movie? Because it has probably one of the greatest Arnold Schwarzenegger lines of all time. Big Gillian, here's your sub zero. Now play it zero. <laughs> it's, only- it's it's a, a hugely <laughs> dumb lie, but only Arnold Schwarzenegger can get away. It is the worst lie. <laughs> it's so dumb, it could have gone into Batman and Robin. Yes, but my <laughs> yeah, favorite one, of course, is, is yeah. like uh, he kills someone, splits them in half. And as they're running, uh, he and uh, Maria Conchita and Lanza are running away. It's like, oh, what happened to such and such? He's like, you had the split. (laughs) (laughs) You had the split. That's the one I, (laughs) oh, God, I was just watching Eraser. And it's just like, he shoots a crocodile, your luggage. (laughs) (laughs) I think they were just really trying to give him (laughs) one-liners. Yes, because I couldn't imagine uh, Stephen King writing uh, lines like that. And even though... He can write some pretty wacky one-liners, Stephen King, but nothing on the level of this extent in this movie. No, I think I think they were like, Arnie, say someone, give us a one-liner. And then he also did the I'll be back, if I remember correctly, yes. um, which he has to do, do apparently. No, it, it, I wonder what his career would like if he didn't say I'd be back in The Terminator. Mm. Um, he was just famous, but he wasn't known for that one-liner. Um, I wonder what film history would look like. <laughs> Very different, not as fun. Um, but no, this yeah, it's it, yeah, it's kind of just the next step from what Lou Bloom is doing, but not that far away. And I know everyone, every single time I've heard people talk about that movie, it's like, oh, we are so close, we are so close. Yes, I think we're in a world where we are pretty close to um, the Running Man. But I think we've always been in a weird way. We all could always can see ourselves going back to the Gladiators. So. Um, yeah, that is my final trailer. Mm-hmm. And within that, we're going to be a movie that I actually have a lot of thoughts on, so I'm going to try and hold back a little bit. Um, <laughs> of course, that is – this is the only time I've ever been surprised someone didn't get an Oscar nomination for Best Actor. Um, and that is, of course, Jake Gyllenhaal or Gyllenhaal in Nightcrawler, directed by Dan Gilroy, 2014. Go around, get a shot inside the car. Hey, back away. I got it. I'm back. I'm back. Will this be on television? Morning news, if it bleeds, it leads. Are you currently hiring? I'm starting a TV news business. You, get back! I film breaking stories. Maybe you saw my item this morning, you were fatal carjacking. No, I mean, I don't have a TV. Do you have a cell phone? Yeah. Does it have GPS? Yeah. Congratulations, you're hired. <sighs> okay. We're taking the next right. Good, stupid! Beat the police. I will never ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. Excuse me. I have something you'll be very excited about. You have a good eye. I want you to contact me when you have something. Something like this. Think of our newscast as a screaming woman running down the street with her throat cut. You will be seeing me again. Any unit, residential 211. Home invasion. Did you two see this in a theater? Yes. I did not see this in the theatre, I believe. I was given a Blu-ray review copy. Ooh. So my first viewing was, like, to watch it to review, and I was just blown away. I've seen this movie maybe, I think, four times now. 
it's not a movie you should probably see that many times, but I have. (laughs) (laughs) No, there's a certain, no, the filmmaking's just, it's very simple actually, because you're just really letting Jake just go for it and everyone Mm. has to react to him. Mm. But, uh, Bede, how uncomfortable are you sitting in that theatre going, oh, no, is this movie going to go too far? (laughs) Yeah, I know that watching it in the theatre, and I keep thinking, did I see this movie twice in the theatre? I try to remember. But knowing me, I probably would have. (laughs) But I was completely enthralled by this film from beginning to end. Like, it is incredibly uncomfortable and a very unsettling film. But you can't help just be hooked into the story by Jake Gyllenhaal's performance as mm. Lou Bloom. Like, mm. he is phenomenal throughout this whole film. And like you, Lindsay, I think everyone was legit shocked he didn't get a Best Actor nomination he at the Oscars. He should have. They yeah. should just give him one now just to make that, up that, for it. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Exactly. And he was nominated for so many in the lead-up. Like, he, I was, like, reading trivia, like, the other day, and, like... He was nominated for a Golden Globe, a mm-hmm. BAFTA, a SAG, an Independent Spirit Award, a Critics Broadcast Award, and a Saturn Award. He was nominated for all those awards and didn't get an Oscar nomination. That is insane because that's usually the indicator of, mm. oh, he's getting an Oscar nomination. Yeah. And, <clears throat> like, I have a weird relationship with the Oscars. I obsess about who's getting nominated. I never watch it. And then I grumble about who wins constantly. I think it just goes back to the fact when I was a kid, I love the Oscars. But yeah, even though I know did. ultimately, <laughs> yeah, ultimately it's not going to change how I feel about film and it's not going to change who my favourites are because mm. art is subjective and these are the specific group of people voting. They're not me. Um, basically, the Oscars, Oscars would look a lot different and probably more correct if I was voting, but that is not <laughs> how it is. Um, but, yeah, I was just generally surprised. I was looking at this going, oh, yeah, he's got to get an Oscar nomination. I mean, this is a transformation. It's... A very specific mannered performance. It is amazing. He, this is, I mean, it's like Taxi Driver. Um, everyone is re- having to react to him. There's nothing yeah. else for room in the movie. You're not getting moments with other characters when they're just alone. Mm. It is constantly how they react to Lou Bloom. And yeah. most of the time, it's they're annoyed with him and just trying to get away from him. And mm. other times, they, when you get to Renee Russo, she's, pulled and Riz Ahmed they are pulled into his web and Mm. which unfortunately gives him far more power than this kind Mm. of person should ever get but yeah you you, every time he's on screen your skin crawls yeah it does and like you said this is absolutely framed about him and you don't see other characters really he's almost in like every bit of this film Mm, you're constantly with this character and Jake Gyllenhaal just completely transforms into this, uh, you know, the the very, I guess, um, metaphorical vampire for for this instance. But he, he plays it so, I can't even think of the right word, because there is a coldness and a creepiness and a griminess about the character that he, you could almost look at this guy as being an alien who has to remember how to act human. Oh, and that's yes. almost what I feel like that performance is. But as you get with the story, like, he pretty much falls into um, becoming, I guess, what they call a stinger, who mm. go onto scenes of crimes or accidents, get in the the big shots that they can then sell to the news who are always hungry for 
you know, up close and personal shots of accidents or robberies. And very specifically, as we find out as the movie progresses, there's very specific things they want to broadcast on the news. Mm. And you can imagine this is very true because this kind of story is not going to get ratings, a story in this neighbourhood probably not. And it gets to the point where the character of Lou Bloom, after hearing all this and taking it in from, like, Renee Russo's character, he essentially then starts creating or helping himself to create the news. And you really expect that this character is not going to get anywhere. You think this is this really bizarre rise of a character, but you feel like as it goes on, ultimately he's probably going to end up getting shot or something because of his actions. And in the end, this character gets exactly what the hell he wants. It's not this happy ending that you kind of want from this movie. This This shows you how it is because you could be the scummiest thing in existence and you're probably going to succeed. And uh, that's Nightcrawler. And those are my thoughts. <laughs> no, I, I think you're right. I think he is very cold. I think he is very um, – he's got a constant – because when I was watching the movie, I was like going, wait, he's not blinking. He's mm. talking to this person, but he's not blinking. Throughout the movie, he starts blinking more, which I think is a really smart choice, but it always feels very deliberate. And he never looks at – he's always looking away from someone when he does. When he's looking at someone mm-hmm. in the face, he will not blink. Um, and it's this really amazing thing. And then, but also I get anger, the seething anger from him, especially the line I love when he's talking to Riz Ahmed and Riz is, keeps going, look, you got to just remember your, uh, I can't remember what he says, but he's like going, you know, be normal, relax. Thing. And he goes, you don't get people. And he goes, maybe the problem is I, that it's not that I don't get people. It's just, I don't like people. And it's like, oh, that's it. That I can see what's going on a bit now. You just have so much contempt for everyone around you that mm. you are now you are fine with doing this. Um, mm. He, I mean, he's. Kind of, I think he. I was trying to decide if he was playing him as a sociopath because if you watch like No Country for Old Men mm. and you watch Javier Bardem, he has no emotion whatsoever. Mm. He's just, but Bloom does. Mm. Like he's mm. very quick to anger, so I'm not entirely sure. I think he, I think he's playing a few things and crossing them over, so you never quite get a handle on. Yeah, I think it's like there's definite traits to different yeah. things that they kind of put into this character. Yeah, but they're never enough of one or the other. If that makes yeah, sense. It, it's kind of like this mixture that makes yeah very terrifying. Like a, another film you could definitely watch with this, and you probably won't sleep for a week. But you can watch Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer along with this because essentially it is the same thing where you watch Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and they film their crimes. Mm. Lewis Bloom would be right there with them filming the home invasion. Like, he has no nothing. There's nothing there. He feels nothing. There's no empathy. He doesn't care. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't. And he, and I think there is this general contempt he has for every single human being. The way he talks to Renee Russo is horrifying. And the fact that she is so broken and has just given up her soul that she will just take that abuse and kind of run with it mm. because she thinks at the ultimate, the end of the day, she's not going to mm. lose her job 
which by the way is kind of crappy i love the fact this is all at night i love the fact this is the graveyard mm -hmm. shift i love how you never meet any of the execs renee's russo mm. is the highest person that you meet in terms mm. of management and she is kind of it's kind of hard you feel sorry for this woman but at the same time you're like oh but everything and she succeeds at the answer she's great but mm. It's kind of like you made this bed already before he even walked into the room. You, yeah. Yeah, there's something about him that you responded to because mm. you're too similar. Yeah, she she is the two sides of the same coin. Yes. Essentially, but also she gives a fantastic performance and she she's absolutely an underrated actress. She does not get talked about enough. She's great how in everything. Good she is. She's amazing and the supporting cast is so good. Like Bill Paxton's in a in a small role. Yeah, it's been the cosiest ever. Just, I love him. <laughs> oh, I, I miss that man so much. One oh. of my all-time favorite actors. Mm. Uh, as we discussed before we recorded, like I totally forgot Riz Ahmed was in this movie. <laughs> and he's so adorable, but he's still kind of not morally where he should be. Um I but yeah, like it's so just amazing everything with this film. There's, there's this kind of, you feel sorry for Riz Ahmed because but you, if you were in his circumstances, like you had one job, you're not, you don't have a home or one stage you're living in a garage because that's what you can afford. I would probably be making the same, um, same kind of decisions he would be making, especially when the fact that all you know is you need, a, you could just have to go into places you don't belong with a camera. I'm like, mm. and I can make money for this. I don't. I can actually get ahead and not be on. Yeah, I, unfortunately, mm. he's understandable. I can see why he's doing this, and mm. I love it. God, Rizamid changes appearance every single time he's in a movie. It's, it's well, he's just the best, isn't he? Yes, he's got these amazing. He's got large eyes like Jake Gyllenhaal, but every single time he's in a movie, he physically transforms. I swear, in the um, thing of metal and the sound of metal, he's taller than he is in um, this movie, which he looks tiny, which I assume he is a tiny man, but he looks taller than, I swear, he just, he changes his height. <laughs> he's just, he's, he's a, such a fantastic actor. He is. But he's also, oh my God, you're very good looking, Riz Ahmed. Yeah, very much <laughs> is. Uh, Bede, who are your, some of your favourite supporting characters in this? Ooh, well, it's hard to say because everybody's so great in this movie, like from mm. even down to the smallest roles. Mm. Um, I think what I really kind of rewatching this film again, I kind of realized this film was kind of a family affair for everyone involved. It, yeah. Because like you got Dan Gilroy, who, you know, up to this point has been working as a screenwriter for many years. And so this was his directorial debut. Mm. Uh, his brother, Tony Gilroy, who's a mm. Oscar nominated director and, and writer in his own right. He produced mm. the film. Mm -hmm. His brother, John Gilroy, edited the film. Oh, God, um, how many Gilroys are there? <laughs> and also, Dan Gilroy is actually married to Renee Russo in real life and wrote this role specifically for mm. her. Look, That's and, right, yes. Yeah. Look, if I was married if I was married to someone like Dan Gilroy, I would have been like, you need to write me a role now. Come on. Yeah. I but, mean, but, uh, I mean, Joel Cullen gives friggin' Francis McDormand Oscar-winning friggin' movies every other year. Come on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but not only that, uh, Robert Elswit, who shot this film, and I think what's interesting about this film, at least from a cinematography standpoint, is, well, I was reading it, it was shot both with 35mm film and also digitally. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Oh, yeah. How the film looks, that actually makes a lot of sense, too. Yeah, because yeah. the night scenes were definitely shot digitally, but all yeah. the day mm. scenes and interior scenes were all, were shot on 35. 
uh, mm. kind of similar to how Collateral did the same thing yeah. as well. Um, so, I mean, he also, you know, shot like a lot of Paul, D- D- sorry, <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson's early work right up till um, There Will Be Blood and a few others. And mm. uh, But the thing is, I discovered he's actually the godfather of Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh. <laughs> okay, then. So this is so, a family affair, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So not only that, Jake Gyllenhaal brought his godfather to cup as the cinematographer on this film. <laughs> yeah, because Jake Gyllenhaal's writer, his dad's a writer as well or something? Like, Yeah, he, well, his dad's uh, Stephen Gyllenhaal's a director. His mum, Naomi Farmer, yeah. she's a screenwriter as well. Like, she's written, I think she's an Oscar nom in, the, in her own right. She wrote uh, Running on Empty, the oh, Web film. That is a very good movie. Yes, uh, that broke my heart. No, because, yeah, it seems like Maggie and Jake were always going to be kind of mm. just with that fam, and then that, this movie was a very – it feels very intimate. It does, mm. like, yeah. But, no, it makes sense with the digital and the 35 because when you're at night in L.A., you want L.A. to pop, mm. very much like yeah. lateral. Um, yeah. And you want even like – or even um, it's in Florida but with friggin' Miami Vice – uh, you you want to see those skyscrapers and each individual light. You don't want anything blurring mm. together like it would be with 35, but during the day you want it to be a lot more scratchy, a lot more dull. Yeah. Like the movie comes alive at night when Jake Gill- Gill- Gyllenhaal is on the hunt. That's when, Although, the, yeah. One yeah. thing I, I just want to bring up, and you can tell me if maybe this isn't correct, but was one of the scenes where he goes to an accident, was that where they do the dance in La La Land and also stalked by my Doctor 3? I, I think so. Because <laughs> I'm like, this looks awfully familiar. Yes, because how many scenes have you seen seen but stalked by my um, Doctor 3? <laughs> yeah, I've seen three of five, so. <laughs> yes. And the fact that that movie rips off La La Land with a song and dance sequence. It's amazing. <laughs> okay, so so is Eric Roberts in all of these, or just yes. oh, okay, yes. I need to watch these movies. <laughs> yes, yes, you do. You you will become obsessed, Lindsay, after watching uh, Stalked by My Doctor. Oh, I, I didn't. Realize... Which, ironically, was also an episode of the Two Be Tuesdays podcast. You can listen <laughs> at the Super Network. Um... <laughs> this is where I heard of these movies, and I was like, "What the fuck is this thing?" <laughs> I ne- do I need to watch this? And then I listened to the thing. Yeah. I'm like, I think I might actually need to watch this. I didn't realize he was an all. Yeah, and he plays the same character. (laughs) Yes. At least Um, from what we've seen, the first three kind of follow a storyline, kind of. They continue off of each other. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, the four or five can go way, way weird, but oh my God, I love how this is Eric (laughs) Robinson's franchise. (laughs) Yes. I guess um, with two points I want to bring up about this film, I find really interesting. Mm. Uh, One of the first ones being that and I'm not the first person to kind of point this out, so because another other people have pointed this out as well. But I'm, what I find interesting about Lou Bloom as a character is he has no arc in this film. Mm. He starts no, off he the same and ends the same. And it's one of those rare cases where, like, you know, if anyone knows what a character arc is, like it's when a character starts off being one thing at the beginning and then has a change and becomes a different character by the end of the film. Lou Bloom is the same throughout this film, but even then, it's still a really interesting and compelling character uh, it, that Jake Gyllenhaal and Dan Gilroy created together. Yeah, no, it's kind of weird. The only difference is is that he's not having to st- sell stolen copper. He is now selling murder uh, or a, yeah. a death. 
That's the only, yeah. and he's actually getting positive affirmation and he's also getting money. That's the only thing. He's in a slightly better economic place than he was at the beginning of the movie. That's it. Uh, mm. Like, I love the scene when he's, I think it's when he's actually first met Bill Paxton and he's always oh, watching the guys film the accident mm. and he's watching the news. He's flipping the channels and he's sitting in a dark apartment with a light mm. on sewing his pants. Like, yeah. this is yeah. a guy that has to sew his clothes. Like, he has, he's completely broke. Mm. And he's watching the news and you can just see him thinking of like, ah, oh, I could, I could do this. Like, I don't, I have no conscience. Like, yeah. I mean, I love the introduction to Lou. It's, you can fully see him unclipping because you can, it's not doubt you he's a liar. He will lie. He will deflect. He will keep asking you questions. Mm. He will not blink at you. Um, and then if all else comes to anything else, he will beat the living shit out of you, maybe kill you. Cause you don't yeah. actually find out what happens to that security guard. Yeah, and yep. he um he believes his own bullshit as well. Oh my god, so much. Mm. Yeah, I think as well. Like when we were talking about network before about me- how the media can exploit mm. uh, serious situations, mm. uh, you see that a lot throughout this whole film, particularly the very sort of uneasy and uncomfortable situation where Lou Bloom arrives at a like a shoot like a shootout at this mansion before the cops even get there and him mm. going around video video recording like all these dead bodies mm. and all that and then selling it onto the news that day and kind of just seeing how the media kind of treats mm. the these things like like you like yeah it's news but there's a very exploitive feeling yeah. throughout all of that and it kind of reminds and sort of watching this film and to get a little bit serious right now, it kind of reminded me at least a couple of weeks ago with that horrible shark attack that was in the news. Mm. Oh, like, yeah. They're like mm. the footage of that, even though, yeah, the actual, uh, the man who was killed was blurred out. But at the same time, you're thinking like they're showing this footage where everyone can watch it. And it's footage of a person getting killed in that in that footage yeah um, do you yeah. really need to see this why is this on the internet why is this being passed around yeah and also like, like it's fucked to, to put it bluntly yeah and mm. and sort of watching this scene and like how that whole section of like almost like in real time how they put that yeah. footage yes. together and how, put it on the produce. news yeah exactly you see and, that over and over again with yeah, the different yeah. things he's bringing in, how, where they put it, yeah. what they, and how can, they music, everything. It's, it's Yeah, and you can almost feel like you can hear people, like when you find out about that shark footage, like being saying, you can almost hear the producers kind of going, now show this and this, and it's just, it makes you feel sick, honestly. Yeah. Or calling also- legal to go, can we show this legally? Mm-hmm. Well, if you blur out their faces and the wound, yes. but Morally! You can still- mm-hmm. Yeah, and also, like... <laughs> But morally, it doesn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And the fact that, like, you find out, like, oh, the police are, are go to the station to get the footage because they want to know how he got that footage. Mm. And also for the fact that, you know, they're showing it on TV and not even the families of the people who were killed had been notified yet. So yeah. these are, even though, yeah, <laughs> their faces and all that are blown out, but, you know, these are the families of these people are seeing the... Their yeah. family of their family members being killed in this footage, like, or at mm. least they're dead in this footage. Like, you, I, I feel like the house was very identifiable, even yes. if they blurred out the people. So for me, like, that's like really fucked up. Mm. As as you watch this, and they just have like no conscience in in doing this. 
but he uses it as such an opportunity because he sees who done it. He filmed who did it, and he yeah. purposely keeps it away from the police yeah. because he wants to go back and create He, more he story. wants to create the story. Like, yeah. he, ultimately, he's creating the story, and, and this leads to the murder of poor Riz Ahmed, and which what? I totally forgot happened in this movie, and I yes. was shocked once again. Me too. I was like, oh, maybe don't walk toward that car. Don't listen to him. And then I forgot where the bullets came from. I'm like, wait, yeah. did, did Bloom shoot? Oh, no, it's because it's, Bloom knew the guy was in the he, car. He still. knew the guy was not dead, yeah. He knew the guy wasn't dead. and He set that up. And the, the realisation in as he's dying, he's like, you set this up. Yeah, he yeah. fucking did because he does not care. He, no, it's, and it's all because, th- this is the thing I noticed this time around because I haven't seen it since, I think probably mm. 2015 because when it came streaming or something. Um, mm. And there's this thing where you just see, Jake Gyllenhaal just throw out numbers if he wants to. Like, you can have this for $1,000. Or when he's trying to sell the bike for mm. $8,000, he's just, like, peddling around the frigging store. Mm. And the guy's just looking at him going, no, I'm not giving you $8,000 for that. Yeah. Yet. And he'll go, okay. And when he feels like he's gotten someone up at least $50, or it's just a mm. notion, or he realizes, like, the copper guy, it's like, I think we can do this. I think he's like, no, you're getting two fifty dollars for it, and that's it. If not, fuck mm. off. I don't want to deal with you right now. Um, and then as soon as Riz starts doing it to him, like, no, I think you should give me this. I think this number, he gets so angry because yeah. it's this projection thing of, oh, no, you're not. Do- I do that to people. You don't do that to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's why he dies. It is such a fascinating reason. It's mm-hmm. like not even the protection of his company. It's because he can he this Riz is learning from him and learning his style of bargaining and lose us like, nope, shutting it down right now. This is not happening. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And with Lou, because Lou has such a command over people in this film, like a few mm. times we see him with um, Renee Russo's character, like he is in charge of the situation. He mm. knows what he wants and he mm. knows how to get it. Mm. And the fact that, you know, like he, in that scene with Riz Ackman, it's like he's like seeing like he's trying to reason, do the same thing to him, but Riz is having no bar of it and knows mm. what he wants. And mm. he's like, you know, he, and he doesn't like the fact that somebody kind of un, up mm. wants him, sorry, yeah. uphands him in the, in, you know, in that situation. And then, of course, he sees him as a threat and wants to get mm. rid of him. Yes. Mm. And does it very quickly. It's like, mm. it doesn't feel like there's much planning. It just feels like they're in the car, he sees an opportunity, and he mm. does it. It's not yeah. like you can see him planning like 15 minutes before, before they mm. meet up, before they meet up for, for the night shift. It's mm. literally, oh, you're a threat. Oh, you're actually bargaining with me? No, I'm sorry, you're dead. Mm. That's that's not how it's, mm. you, you can see the build of anger, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's such a, yeah, it's such a fascinating performance from, yeah. From and what Gil- also, yeah. um, you, you notice as the film goes on is the, the more intense and gruesome the footage that he brings. Yeah. The more, um, Renee Russo responds to him with like this lust in her. Yes. It's really, it, it's very, um, it's very creepy to, to be fair. You, yeah. can, you can see how she hates herself for it a little bit. Like when she tries to pull away and when they're in the restaurant and you're sort of saying, well, you're, and you're a woman in your forties. You, you're, I'm guessing you only lasted a job every, for two years. 
because that's what your contract is. You're the lowest rated news agency. You're in two years is up. I mean, what else you got going on? I mean, really. And you can just see the self-loathing in her face of, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know how to argue against that because unfortunately you're right and I'm losing my career. And so every single time I go down the ladder, I get more bloodlust because that mm-hmm. is what is required of me. And she, he kind of meets her probably at her most vulnerable, but at the same time her most – horrible like she's just she's just mm. sold herself she's gone she's gone yeah. by that point yeah. yeah and we got to see that at the end like once they're about to show you know those two guys like getting killed in the mm. um at the footage at the end and also Riz's m- being killed as well mm. like her um one of her co-workers who's the pretty much like one of the few moral compasses the only moral compass yeah. yeah the moral compass he comes in as oh there's been information about that that triple homicide shootout murder at that mm. mansion, they found out it was actually like a drug bu- drug deal gotten wrong and there was drugs everywhere in that building. But she's like, yeah, just put it up the midday news. We don't need to put it up right now. There's no yeah. rush. And she's like more concerned about getting this footage out there to get the ratings rather than focusing on the truth. Well, that goes back to network. Um, mm. I mean, Faye Dunahay has this whole plan of, following some sort of, um, I think it's meant to be very similar to the Black Panthers, um, mixed with whatever group kidnapped um, Patty Hearst. Yeah. Um, and kind of following their crimes and making a TV show out of their crimes, like having a camera crew follow them around while they rob banks. It's kind of that idea. Um, and that's, well, it's very similar to what uh, Renee Roos is doing. But I love how the crime, yeah, I mean, the line she says, when she's describing the station to um, what they want, it's like essentially it's a white woman running down the street with her throat cut. That is what they want. And it's very racist. It's very kind of, it's like urban crime sneaking into the suburbs. And it's mm. the whole, those guys were drug dealers doesn't fit that narrative. They want things coming in from the outs, these outside yep. threats coming into your safe neighborhood. Yep. That, you, that you think it's one thing, but it actually never is that. So it's, it's yeah, and then you get Lou Bloom talking about how he's framing things and how it's almost like art, and it's just like going, this is not, mm, no, no, this is not what it's meant to be, though I don't know if it ever was that. Like I keep thinking the news even back in the 50s where they sort of glorify um, mm. those old American kind of, and the, I can't remember Australian one that probably had that same, that guy that you trusted that gave you the news. I'm like thinking, mm. yeah, but someone still had to decide what was news. Um, yeah. I mean, Watergate only became a thing because um, those two guys, Bernstein and um, what's his name, just kept writing those stories and it took mm. years for them, everyone, anyone to pay attention to it. Mm. Um, I can't think of an Australian comparison, but I don't know if the ever the news was ever that morally high, if the fourth estate was ever on that pedestal mm. exactly. I, I don't quite know if it was ever that. It just seemed that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I also like how the film kind of subtly looks at that, how the news can be very racist yes. as well. In oh, terms of like, yeah. like yeah. how basically, well, we need to like our new, like our, our main audience are like white suburban people, mm. and they want to know about all these stories, and so we got to focus on like you know crimes that are being committed by mi- minorities or gang related mm. crimes, so that sort of terrifies them. And oh, you mean like a spate of a few years ago stories about coming up about gang violence in Melbourne that may have that may that probably didn't exist in the way that it actually existed but it made a great story mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. but 
But um, yeah, it's there's a lot of things about this film, like rewatching it again. And I have a feeling like Network, this is a film like we're going to watch every 10, 20 odd years mm. and it's still going to be very relevant. Yes. And I think it's interesting as well, like this film kind of came out around a time where there was a lot of films coming out in Hollywood that kind of explored the dark side of the American dream and what people will do to achieve what they want. Mm. Yes, I think you're absolutely uh, right about that. There was kind of um, uh, Hollywood films always go through a spate where it suddenly wants to talk about that subject. Um, Mm. I'm probably expecting I wouldn't be surprised if in the next few years you see that again, just with especially after the, the pandemic and everything that's happening and all that kind of thing. But there's this kind of weird thing where Lou Bloom feels like a creation of this system. Like I can't he doesn't have Paris. He just kind of popped up one day in that weird shirt and his mm. big eyes and just started walking around going, can I have a job? Um, mm. but there's the specific way he talks. Like he's just, cause he says, I even went to business school. Like you can mm. tell he's read every single self-help book he can probably get his hands on that kind of tell you how to live in a um, capitalist society. You need to do these things um, in order to succeed at only these things. And it's, Unfortunately, unfortunately for him, it does work because that is mm. kind of what you need to do. It's like, you know, Seven mm. Habits of Highly Effective People or How to Make Friends and Influence People is pretty much this movie. Mm. But this is kind of weird kind of thing where he only speaks in this kind of, I mean, I don't love the self-help industry. Sorry. If, you, if it helps you, great. For me, I often find that language very empty. It's yeah. like they just say stuff and then you mm. have to fill the gaps. There's no purpose mm. or intent to the language. It's just they can go out and say, have more confidence, visualize what you want and go for it. And it's like that, okay, what does that actually mean in practice? What is what is the mm. intent behind what you're actually saying? And he's saying all these things that actually have mm. no intent or meaning, but yeah. the narrative in the way that Dan Gilroy, because um, he, uh, who, as he was writing it, gives the movie this intent and it's so it's kind of showing off what everything that he says which one is usually a lie especially I love his interview with Reza Mead it's like I, I I'm the head of a very highly su- su- successful news gathering company mm. um okay sure <laughs> I'm mm. giving you an internship you'll be paid an experience um all these kind of things that actually don't mean anything but this is mm. the movie is written with such intent and purpose it mm. just shows how empty that language is and yeah. That's the thing I really latched onto when I first watched it, and I love it for that. It's just, again, showing how much that stuff is so hollow, and it's more about your intent. And his intent works because he's moving bodies around who maybe still be alive and then filming them yeah. so he can get them on the right thing. Mm. Um, and it's the music's triumphant. The movie's like going, yes, look at him go. And you're just like, going, I'm scared. Yeah. <laughs> like, I really don't approve of this. I don't like this. I, I don't like this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is the point of a film like this. You're not supposed to be comfortable. If you're comfortable, you are Lewis Bloom. And maybe, just mm. maybe you might want to look into that. Yeah, maybe you want to talk to someone about mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah. Well, I think I did read somewhere Dan Gilroy, like having Lou attack that cop or got security guard at the beginning was to kind of at least give the audience like, maybe we should, you shouldn't be on this person's mm. side from the very yeah. beginning. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. And showing you who he is from the get-go. Mm-hmm. So when he goes and sells the wire fencing to the other guy, 
who is not buying any of his bollocks. Like he do, he mm. does meet a few people who are just not like the cop, the guy he's trying to sell the copper wire to, the guy at the pawn shop. All those guys are not buying his shtick mm. at all. Um, and he's kind of, you can tell he's kind of just like, well, okay, I'll take whatever you're going to give me. Mm. Um, or I'll just lie until I can get yeah. Until enough time passes that I know that you can't get the tape. It's, yeah, essentially, it's, yeah. yeah, essentially, that's what he's, he's just buying time, essentially. Um, but mm. it's kind of fascinating when you do come across those people like the security guard who is who, just like, you're full of shit. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, but this movie is absolutely incredible and has so much to say. And yet, you're right, Beads, right. This doesn't really have that much of an arc. It's like, mm. the kind of is, I mean, yeah, I mean, he kills Riz Ahmed. There's a few things that kind of happen. And mm. it's the projection of rise of violence, essentially. Yeah. Um, and driving around LA. I mean, this is such an LA movie that I feel like I know my way around mm. LA when I'm, when he's yelling at poor Riz for not getting the, the, yeah. the right. <laughs> we should be going on this road. Why are you telling me to go on that road? Yeah. Very <laughs> oh, much. Yes. Um, anything else you'd like to say about Nightcrawler before we end? Well, if you haven't seen Nightcrawler, see Nightcrawler. If you haven't watched it for a while, go watch it. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And you may need a hug afterward, but yeah. it is such an engrossing, tense, brilliant yes. movie where you're just watching a disaster unfold before your mm. eyes, which, again, it's kind of like the news often. <laughs> the yeah. You're just watching things going... Oh, no. Um, mm. But, yes, thank you so much for coming on um, and talking these movies. So this is, to watch these movies and then talk about it and hang out with you guys was an absolute blast. It was an absolute pleasure being very excited to discuss these two excellent movies together. Oh, yes. definitely. It's always very fun to uh, come on your show, Lindsay, and we look forward Ooh. to coming back again, at, uh, again in the future. Yes, you did actually put through a double. Um, I can't remember what it was, but I was very like, ooh, this sounds like fun. Um, yes. But, yeah, um, so and before we go, please tell me you can find your good work, especially Marcy, who has had a – oh, sh what the – yeah, I think you've, you've so, just yeah. seen uh, the Lou Bloomer gifts Mars made of met with my face on them in yeah. the group chat. Yes, yes, I did. Oh, my God, that's amazing. And I look strangely look like Jay Gyllenhaal just with a bow. Yeah, it's just terrifying. It's very bizarre looking. The one, the one when you're doing the whole finger-pointing one is incredible. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is amazing. I love it so much. <laughs> just, put, just put bead in all the gifts, please. I, I will. <laughs> you, you say that now, but then Marcy will send more, and then it will just get worse and yep. more terrifying from there. I know. Yep. Yeah. I know you're probably on there, but if a no surrender, no surrender, um, no no retreat, no surrender gift of you as Bruce Lee, or the ghost of Bruce Lee, would be amazing. Oh jeez, I'm <laughs> terrified of that. Might have to work on that one, Bead. Oh jeez. <laughs> or actually, maybe the guy who eats the cake. Oh. <laughs> well, I did one a, a while back of me as Tommy was so in the room. <laughs> I think I remember that one. <laughs> I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hey, Mark. Um, uh, yes. yes. Marcy. <laughs> Sorry, I got yes. that right there. For, for, for more hilarity in gift form, you can follow my Twitter account at twitter.com slash supermarcy, and you can find what we do at supermarcy.com 
or you can visit our link tree, which makes things easier because all the links are there. And the address is linktr.ee slash the super network. And we also have one for the To Be Tuesdays podcast, which is linktr.ee slash the To Be Tuesdays podcast. And if you want to go after dark with me, you can check out uh, my after dark podcasting. And that is also at a link tree, which is link tr.ee slash after dark network and i think that's everything or you can find me on letterboxd at super underscore marcy yes please follow those shows because they're amazing i particularly enjoying after dark even though i've never been on wish.com um <laughs> i can now live vicariously through you <laughs> yes you can see the weird nicholas cage shaped toilet t-shirt that we found on wish <laughs> Yeah, oh, a fetish for everyone. <laughs> mm-hmm. Bede, please tell us where you can find your good work. Uh, we, if anyone wants to find me, they can find me on my Twitter account at twitter.com slash bejamine, or they can find my letterbox account at letterbox.com slash bejamine. And you can also find all my works uh, over at supermarcy.com with all my reviews and columns. Include, I've got some uh reviews audio reviews i should say are coming up very soon and you can also check out uh my one on the unofficial celine dion biopic aline so if people (laughs) want to hear my thoughts on that movie head straight to supermarcy.com and you know you want to actually i kind of want now i didn't even know that thing existed which is why i love you too so much (laughs) (laughs) my doctor stalked me and aline i mean yeah how Good. I mean, how it can't get much better. A lead <laughs> has to be C because the actress who plays her, who's like, who's also the writer and director, and she's in her fifties, plays the quote-unquote Celine Dion character at all stages of her life, including five years old. <laughs> she, they have her face digitally inserted on a five-year-old's body. I don't, I don't get this at all. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I mean, yes, there is a thing of putting your face on bloom and pointing and then your face is a model, but on a five-year-old, what? No. It's a walk hard type of stuff that happens in this movie and it plays it very straight too. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Thank you so much for coming on and making the time to come and talk to these uh, about these doubles. This was absolutely um, amazing. Um, thank you for listening to Shock and Awe. Um, if you want to follow us, as usual, Shock and Awe 1 at Instagram and Twitter. And if you want to follow me, it's Reading Geek on Twitter and also Letterboxd. Um, I made that easy for myself by just making them all the same. <laughs> and we will be back next week with another double feature. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.